Scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and uh, in homage to uh, old school, uh, I will read it uh, from the New American Standard Version. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the internment service for Jim and Sylvia Alfred, I was given the privilege of sharing a few words. And when we picked up Anne, John's sister from LAX, and drove her back to Riverside, she talked at length about how she felt like her compass had been broken, and that planted a seed for me. So being the dynamic communicator that I am, I, I went online, went to Amazon.com, and I ordered a compass. And I brought a compass to the internment service and sat it on the table and hit it with a hammer. Nothing happened. <laughs> I hit it again, this time squarely on the glass, and the glass shattered, and the liquid inside went everywhere. And, but the case, undamaged. It was only after the internment service, when I went home and I looked at the packaging that this compass came in, where it said in very fine print, especially for a guy my age with my eyesight, very fine print, it said, the external case is indestructible. <laughs> Wish I had known that. <laughs> we desperately want things in our life to be unbreakable. We want our stuff to last forever. And when the manufacturers plan obsolescence, we get furious with them. We want our relationships to last forever just the way they were, the way they've always been. 
We don't want anything to change, except maybe us a little bit. We want life to be unbreakable. And yet, even the lamest of us can break the glass on a compass. Life is full of brokenness all around us. And we live in that tension. We live in that, in that struggle between the desire for an unbroken future and the reality of our broken present. And we struggle with what to do about that. Paul understood that struggle. He, he had one of those kinds of lives, a broken past. Saul of Tarshish, the, the, the chief of staff to the Sanhedrin, the great uh, leader of persecution against the Christians who met Jesus and began to use his Roman name, Paul, to communicate a universal gospel. He knew that basically we live in a zombie world. And like the meme says, what's the point of being afraid of the zombie apocalypse when you're already a zombie yourself? Paul understood that grace, God's intervention in our lives, is an act of de-zombification, if that's a word. Because he defines the church in Ephesians 2 as a community of the formerly walking dead. Paul's understanding of sin is that it's a virus that's infected all of humanity and it's made us all zombies. We're all not just walking wounded, we're walking dead before we meet Christ. We simply walk around eating each other's brains. And that's not too far off the mark from the view of what scholars call Second Temple Judaism. There was the first temple, the temple that Solomon built. It was destroyed. And then a second temple. It's built and then remodeled by Herod. And that great temple is the center of Jewish identity. As long as the temple stood, there's hope. As long as the temple stood, there was the understanding in Judaism that the Messiah would come and would rescue his people. That, that all the zombies around Israel, whatever, whatever infection got spread within the people of God, it would be eradicated. And there was a view of the future that all things would be made right. Now, Second Temple Judaism and its apocalyptic worldview stressed the idea of judgment and had a particularly harsh kind of fire and brimstone attitude towards those who were not Jewish. So there was a clear identity marker and you were either in or out. Mostly out. Mostly, if you were a Gentile, you were consigned to zombiedom forever. Paul turns that on its ear while retaining the notion that God's mercy, God's grace 
is an act of de-zombification, an act of reanimating our life and our creation. Paul does that by pivoting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Away from a description about the world as it is. And then says the two most powerful words in the epistle itself. But God. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were zombies in our transgressions. Made us alive together in Christ. But God acted. Now, Paul presents to us a fundamental choice about how we're going to see the world. Are we going to see the world as an impossible field of zombies? Are we going to be like Rick and his gang running from one, one group of walking dead to another? In fact, being the walking dead even though their brains haven't been eaten yet. Or, will we see the world through God's eyes? That it's possible to consider the hope of reanimation. The hope of new life. And Paul says that that happens because God made us alive together with Christ. Now, how one translates that phrase is really important. Here's how I've translated it. We are made alive, comma, together, comma, with Christ. It's not an individual event that Christ comes and together with Him, I'm okay. It's that we are made alive together. The act of reanimation, the de-zombification of our lives does not happen in an individual event. It happens within community. It happens because grace is communal. Paul's declaring that the church, because he's writing to a church, the church in Ephesus, He's declaring forthrightly that the church is not a commodity. The church is not a, a thing that, yeah, I'll go to this one until I don't like it anymore, and then there's another church down the street. They're all the same. Well, yes, they are all the same. They're all full of broken people who have been de-zombified. But they're not commodities. We are not a commodity. The church is not a commodity. 35 years ago, a band of young adults decided they wanted more out of their de-zombification than just individual gratification. And they formed households, intentional communities, and shared their life together in common. And they formed a fellowship that they called the Riverside Brethren in Christ Church. Fast forward today, that vision is still alive. 
There are young adults in our midst who want more out of their Christian life than just individual gratification. And so they've found ways to share space and live in community and not be satisfied with the church's commodity. Not be satisfied with Christianity as commodity, but as an anecdote to the virus that infects the world. Made alive together with Christ. The only way we overcome the virus of spiritual zombification is in community. If you think you can do the Christian faith alone, hope you like the taste of brains. Paul goes on in this paragraph to challenge us and say that with Christ, by grace you have been saved, we've been raised up with Him. You see, resurrection is the surprise of grace. Without without resurrection, grace is is a mystical, hoped-for state of being in the midst of running from the zombie pack. Resurrection, the de-zombification of our lives is something we all experience. Something we're all called into. That's why we take several weeks before Easter to prepare ourselves. Because Easter Sunday is not just ooh, a really cool Sunday where we hide eggs and we have a bunny and, and it's warm and fuzzy. Are you kidding me? This is the this is the moment. Easter is important because it's that point in history where de-zombification could begin to happen and began to happen. When Christ breaks forth from the tomb, the zombies are on the run. And reanimation begins to happen. All of that conspires together, Paul says, to give us salvation. It's God's gift. It's not something we figured out. We didn't come up with the medical miracle to change zombies back into life. God gifts that. It's called grace. And in doing so, in gifting us with that grace, in His workmanship, in His poetic license, we are created to do good in the world. Our doing good doesn't come from how kind we are, how smart we are, how liberal we are, how progressive we are, how thoughtful we are, how caring we are, how nice we are. Good works we do in the world come because Jesus 
cleansed us from the virus of evil. He de-zombified us. <laughs> and that work, which, which in the Greek, that workmanship is actually the word poia, poem. That poetic work of God enables us to do the good in the world that we do. And before any of you go, well, I don't do much good in the world, let me just stop you right there and dare you to say that to me. Because I look at this audience this morning and I see in every person sitting here good that is done in the world through you. Don't believe the lie that you are not God's workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. You most certainly are. And it is clear every day from where I sit. I see it in each of you. I stalk your Facebook pages. <laughs> I see the good you do. The good you do in your families, the good you do in your work, the good you do in the neighborhoods, the good you do with one another. I see it and I am continually amazed by it. The gift that God has given me is the gift of this community and the privilege to be a part of it because I see poetic good works every day from all of you. Grace cleanses us of the virus that has made us zombies and reanimates our life so that we can do good in the world. But that doesn't mean that grace is easy. Aeschylus, the Greek poet, the, the pagan Greek poet, said this, drop, drop in our sleep upon the heart sorrow falls. Memory's pain and to us, though against our very will, even in our own despite, comes wisdom by the awful grace of God. Just because God is a God of grace doesn't make grace easy. There is an awful quality to grace. There is a demanding quality of grace. Grace isn't just a warm fuzzy it's not just a bunny at Easter. It changes us. It transforms us. It challenges us. It bends us in directions we never knew we could be bent. But without it, we are nothing but brain-eating zombies. And it's grace and not judgment, Paul says, that is the central act of God. Paul in Ephesians 2 moves the, the center of his Second Temple Judaism from God's judgment on the world to God's grace for the world. From God reanimating the world by taking Israel and making it the center of all that is, Paul says, now in Christ, the world is made whole, not just Israel. That's why he could change his name from Saul to Paul. Why he could adopt not, not a, an, an ethnically ascribed name, but that universal Latin name 
Grace, not judgment, is the central act of God. And it is grace that forms, sustains, and requires community. No matter how awkward or imperfect. And, and folks, let's face it, community is awkward. Can I get an amen? amen. This community is awkward. <laughs> we are awkward. We trip over each other. We trip over the world around us. We, we get in each other's faces. We step on each other's toes. We annoy the heck out of each other. Hallelujah. Because if we're not doing that, we're not community. Let us once and for all rid ourselves of the notion that community equals uniformity and utter compliance. I mean, for crying out loud, if, 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 if community meant compliance, we'd know a long time ago that we weren't community. Because we never comply. At least not with what I think we ought to do. <laughs> Community's awkward. It challenges us. It, it throws us for a loop. It leaves us going, what? You, you really want me to be part of your life? Huh? I'd be a lot happier just kind of over here in the corner by myself with a book, quiet, out of your way. Community demands that we engage with each other. Grace demands that we engage each other. We don't fully experience the full grace of God until we are ready to be part of each other's lives. And that means church can never be a commodity. There's always a set of relationships. Relationships with God in His triunity and with one another. Because grace ultimately calls for discipleship, or it is not grace. Grace bends us in the direction of asking, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus daily in life with these people, with this band of sojourners, in this world full of brain-eating zombies? How do we band together, not out of fear, but out of love? and spread the reanimating, de-zombifying good news that in Christ all will be made well. That in Christ there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's the awful grace of God. That God doesn't just save us and leave us alone until we're ready to die and go to heaven. Oh, that, that would be so much easier. <laughs> if, if, if God would just let us know that we're good enough to go to heaven, and then we just wait until our number comes up, and then we go, yay. But instead, the awful grace of God calls us into awkward, difficult, painful, challenging, hope-filled, laugh-filled, joyous relationships with each other and with God. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And the church is the family of God.
And in the same way, at the Thanksgiving table, we have crazy uncles and weird cousins. We also do in the church. That's the good news. So this morning, some questions for us to think about. Using the quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. For that, for that reality that grace costs us something. It isn't just God patting us on the head. There, there, you're ready for heaven. Next, you're ready for heaven. Next. Instead, God calls us into costly relationships where we give and receive counsel, where we argue and dispute, where we even occasionally get mad with each other. But always, always remember that without each other, we're just brain-dead zombies left to our own devices. So in the backdrop of costly grace, how much of life do we find ourselves simply wandering around, inattentive to God's grace? Where do you see the fingerprints of God's grace in your life, in our life, in the common life of being church together? Where is God's grace at work? What changes in us when we begin to live in the recognition that God isn't really interested in judging us? If we want God to judge us, he'll be happy to do that. You're brain dead. Next player. God will be happy to judge us if that's all you expect from him. But that's not what he's interested in. He's interested in saying, I have made you a poem. A work of art. Go do good in the world. And I've made you that through Christ. Together. Where's grace in this community? Where do you see God's grace at Madison Street Church? Where do you see God's grace in Riverside? Where do you see God's grace in the global touches that we have in Bangladesh and in Thailand and in the Middle East and in England and in other places? Where do we see the fingerprints of God? And how do we avoid? How do we avoid the poison of cheap grace that is simply, simply the virus that takes us back to zombie land all over again? It's that uh, writer and theologian, Anne Lamont, who says, I do not understand the mystery of grace. Only that it meets us where we are and does not leave us where it found us. I look at your lives and I can see in each one of you how you have not been left behind by grace. How God has met you and how He has moved you forward 
sometimes kicking and screaming, but always on the journey. Grace, my friends, is the unbreakable gift of God. It is the core of what God offers us. And in this Lenten season, while it comes to us as mystery, and while we are not always sure what grace looks like until it has overwhelmed us, I say to you with all the confidence I know how to muster, that God's grace is for you. Not to judge you or condemn you, but to reanimate, to restore, to renew, to revitalize, to recreate our lives together with Christ.